So the phrase, the fear of the Lord, shows up all throughout the Bible, but particularly in wisdom literature. And you guys will remember that wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon's. It's, it's a genre of um, literature in the Bible that we've been looking at. And the book of Proverbs is jam-packed with this phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's the foundation of all uh, perfect wisdom and knowledge, morality, behavior, attitudes, ethics, systems, all comes back to the fear of the Lord. Now, if there's any phrase in the Bible you want to have a good grasp over, that you want to know, you want to understand, that should be right at the center of your heart, it should be this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And yet, it's probably one of the most poorly understood phrases, probably a phrase that if you go around to the average church member and ask them what it means, well, you'll probably get a lot of different answers depending on who you ask. We all fear something. I don't care who you are, what your background is, whether you're like Teddy Roosevelt and you say there's nothing to fear but fear itself. Whoever you are, whatever attitude you have towards fear, I know without having to know anything about you that you fear something. Because if the most ultimate thing of value in your life is the God of the Bible, then you will fear this God. If the most ultimate thing of value in your life is your family, then you will fear your family deserting you later in life. You will fear uh, sickness coming upon your family. You will fear all sorts of things happening to your family. Uh, if the most ultimate thing in your life is money, then you will fear anything that threatens your security, threatens your assets, threatens your investments. If uh, you fear perhaps status, Oh, your ultimate value is in status or popularity, then you will fear anything when, when someone says something bad about you, you know, it will bother you the whole week. You'll be bothered by that one thing that that one person said. Any rejection, hatred, just knowing that there's someone out there that hates you would probably be one of your greatest fears. If your ultimate value is placed in status or popularity, if it's comfort, then you will fear disturbance. You will fear things coming along the way and causing a ruckus, causing chaos, breaking your peace. If it's your spouse, then your ultimate fear could be divorce or breakup or rejection or hatred. We all fear something. But the book of Proverbs tells us the only thing worth fearing is the Lord. And so we're going to look at three things in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to unpack them for you and try. hopefully we get a good understanding by the end of this sermon what the fear of the Lord is. The first one is uh, we're going to look at the concept of the fear of the Lord. I'm basically just going to unpack it, give you a working definition of it. Second, the result of the fear of the Lord, uh, what it does to people. And third, the fulfillment of the fear of the Lord, how the fear of the Lord actually finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So the first thing, the concept of the fear of the Lord. As I said before, it's one of the most misunderstood phrases. Uh, some hear it and try to minimize it and say, you probably heard this before. Uh, when it talks about the fear of the Lord, all it means is just reverence. Have you heard that phrase? Someone say that about the fear of the Lord. It just means reverence. It just means reverence and awe. And that most certainly is an aspect, an element to the fear of the Lord. Don't get me wrong. Reverence is definitely a part of it, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than just reverence. It's a lot more than just awe. It's actually a very interesting concept. Um, every time you see um, the, the word uh, Lord come up in the Bible, you'll either see it with a capital L and three lowercase capital letters. It's one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see in the Bible is, is this all caps Lord, but the last three letters are sort of a lowercase capital. Um, what's my next passage? Yeah, uh, do you want to just throw up the next passage? We'll get into it eventually, but 
Um, you notice how it's all in capitals there. The reason it's all in capitals is because it's actually the name of God that they've translated as Lord. And it actually is Yahweh. When the Hebrew translators were, uh, what translators, tra- uh, scribes were uh, transcribing the word, they thought the name of God was too holy to utter. And so to remind themselves not to say the name of God, they would write Adonai, which means Lord. And we still have it translated as Lord. But every time you see that in the actual original language, it was always Yahweh. When we say the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about some fear of a random God. We're talking about the fear of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the one true God, according to the Bible. In this world of competing gods, it does actually matter which God you fear. If you fear the wrong God, it's going to do you about as good uh, as fearing anything else. That's why the book of Proverbs devotes so much time to explain who God actually is. So who is God? Well, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about his character. Firstly, God is omniscient. That's just a fancy theological term meaning all-knowing. He knows all things, all things, past, present, future. He's the source of all wisdom and knower of all things. Um, Proverbs 5.21 says, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Uh, Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. God knows all our days, all our thoughts, all our ways. Every single thing is before his eyes. He knows um, everything, really. Uh, Proverbs 17.3, it says, The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord is kind of this furnace that our heart goes through and he sees what comes out the other end. And just for reference, when you would try to get gold, you got like gold ore, you dig in for it or something. The way you get pure gold, you got to, you got to melt it. And it's basically saying God melts our hearts and sees what ends up on the end. Is there any gold or silver in our hearts or is it all dross? Is it all stubble? Uh, secondly, the book of Proverbs makes the claim that he is omnipotent. Another fancy theological terms that means all powerful and sovereign. Proverbs 16.1 says the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, verse, uh, Proverbs 16.9 says the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ultimately, you make choices and plans within your heart. But what happens, happens between your heart and what comes out of your mouth? Ultimately, it's the Lord's say. The Lord is in control. He controls all outcomes. He's in control of all things. Nothing happens outside his will. Take a listen to Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every roll of the dice, every hand of poker you got dealt that one time when you had a lot of money on the table, all of it foreordained by God. There is no such thing as random. On our end, 100%. It seems random to us, but ultimately all things foreordained by God. Uh, check this one out. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So even the plans of our heart, to some extent, is under God's control. He's in control of the king. He's in control of everyone. God's will always prevails. And this is what we mean when we say Yahweh, the God of Israel, is sovereign. 
When we, when we say he's in control, there's no molecule, no atom, no physical law, no leaf that falls from a tree that doesn't obey its sovereign creator. It doesn't obey God's sovereign rule. Check out uh, Proverbs 22.2. It says, uh, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. God has made all people. He's in control of all people, the rich and the poor. The lazy and the diligent, the attractive and the plain, God is in control of all things, all outcomes. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? Well, it's really hard for us to relate to God. Why? Because we're barely in control of ourselves, let alone the whole universe. And a lot of people trip over this. A lot of people stumble over this to think God is in control because then it means that God allows evil. God allows suffering, tragedy, all sorts of things. Um, but God is in control in such a way that even evil ends up being swallowed up and turned into good. That God even can take the evil and it no longer is meaningless, but brings it into the good. That's why Joseph can say to his brothers in Genesis fifty twenty, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph's uh, brothers, you remember, sold him into slavery. And his whole life was a life of suffering and struggle and turmoil and mistreatment and oppression. He spent many years in jail only to then be elevated to uh, the top position in all of Egypt. Uh, but because of his effort, so many people were fed in the midst of a famine. And his brothers, who he sees again after all those years, after all his suffering and struggle and turmoil, he sees his brothers and he knows God well enough to know that what they meant for evil when they sold him into slavery, God meant for good. God is weaving all our heartache and suffering and pain into this beautiful tapestry for his glory. But for those who love him. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so when we're saying fear the Lord, we're saying fear the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign creator of the universe who is bringing all things together for good for those who love him, the God that is good, loving, forgiving, faithful, merciful, righteous, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that is who we are fearing. That is the God who we are fearing. But before we go any further, there's one more thing we need to know. He's different to us. You probably got this idea already so far, realizing that he's different to us, right? Uh, and, and the word we use to describe God as being different is the word holy. It means set apart. It means different. Back in the day when I was younger, if I heard the word holy, I just imagined a priest in a dress. And that was my image of what holy was. Uh, someone that was really morally upright. But really what it means is it means set apart, different, um, different to everything. When God, it says that God is holy, it says that he's different. His ways are different to our ways. And what's surprising is, um, and, and I mean, I do this too, but every time we read the book of Proverbs, human beings have this amazing ability that whenever it talks about the wicked and the righteous, we think we're the righteous and those people over there are the wicked. It's amazing. No matter who you are, they'll read the book of Proverbs and they'll go, yep, that's me. Righteous me. I'm that wise guy. And then they read the fool and they're like, ah, oh, no, that guy's an idiot. That's not me. That's that person over there. 
How often do we read the book of Proverbs and we think of someone who's done that thing rather than thinking of ourselves? We get to this book and it's just bizarre. We have this amazing ability to just read ourselves in all the wrong places. And so how can we be so sure? Uh, Proverbs 18, 1 to 2 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Is that not our age right now? People don't take pleasure in learning, but expressing their own opinions. In fact, they're taught from a really young age that their opinions really matter, that they should voice them. How can your opinions matter if you don't know anything? So many people, they're quick to isolate themselves from God's word. Uh, They seek their own desire. They break free from things they don't like, and they begin to come up with their own thoughts about God. They invent their own God. They begin to say things like this. Oh, my God wouldn't do that. My God isn't like that. My God isn't like this. Quick to express their own opinion about what they think God is rather than go to what God has revealed about himself. So if you're God, if, the, if, if, if you're using the phrase my God all the time and your God looks a lot like you, then your God is probably invented. It's probably a figment of your imagination. It probably is yourself as if you were God. And as soon as something happens to these people, who do they blame? Soon as something bad happens, they get angry at God. Proverbs 19.3, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. It's amazing. They dig their own hole, fall into it, and then shake their fists at God. There's this like meme of someone riding a bike, and then he puts a stick in his spokes and then falls off his own bike, and then he blames someone else for it. And it is funny that the human race has this ability by their folly to create all these snares and traps for themselves. And then the moment when it all comes crashing down upon them, who are they angry at? God, as if God should have protected them, as if God should have given them sovereignty, as if God should have given them the outcomes of everything. But we know that God makes all the decisions. But we persist in sin. And yet God gives us over. Romans one twenty one. Listen to this uh, Proverbs language that you hear in the, in the words of Paul. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In other words, the human race does not fear God. In fact, they're much more happy exchanging God for another God. They're much more happy coming along and seeing God and going, oh, kind of cramps my style. This other God that resembles men, resembles birds, if you're a pagan, animals, creeping things, those gods are much more palatable. Let's go over there. It's interesting. Human beings make decisions based on their nature. If you got a, um, a vulture, I brought a vulture into the room. You guys would probably be freaked out. They're very ugly, disgusting birds. But let's say I put a plate of um, uh, just like roadkill and another plate of carrots. What do you think the vulture's going to pick? It's going to pick the roadkill. It's going to devour it. It's going to get straight into that roadkill. If I brought a rabbit in and, and asked the rabbit to make a decision, what's the rabbit going to make a decision? It's going to eat the carrots. They make decisions based on their nature. If I brought a human being in and I placed on one 
plate, the God of the universe, and I play it on a place on the other plate, a false God, what is the human being going to pick? The false God. We make decisions based on our nature. Why am I saying this with the fear of the Lord? Because if you don't understand your own nature, you won't understand God. If you don't understand who God is, you won't understand your nature. God gives us over to the lusts of our hearts. We end up in this slow descent into anarchy and evil. And we see that in our society. We get estranged from God. Uh, And when the spiritual world then breaks through into our world, like fireworks happen, things happen. Uh, Matthew 28, when Jesus has died on the cross, he's buried. Two women go to his tomb to embalm his body. Uh, They're walking towards the tomb and they're wondering who's going to roll this stone away. And there they see in brilliance this, uh, this earthquake and the stones rolled away and sitting on top of the stone is an angel. This angel is so fearsome that the guards who are watching collapse as dead men. The women are terrified. And what's the first thing the angel says to them? Do not be afraid. This is not an isolated event. You can read this a lot. Every time an angel show up, they have to be like, whoa, whoa, settle down. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Constantly, because everyone who sees them is just blown away by the glory that is emanating off them. Why? Well, angels are of a completely different order and majesty to us. They stand before the presence of the Lord and the glory that radiates off angels comes from God. And that's just like the light. Think about it this way. Look, try to look into the sun. You can't do it for very long. You may get blind very quickly. If you look at the light that's coming from the moon, that light isn't coming out of the moon. It's being reflected off the moon. If they're seeing an angel and falling over as dead men, then what is fl- looking full force into the sun? Hebrews twelve twenty-eight to 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Consuming fire, like the center of the sun, a nuclear reactor. God's glory that radiates from him is consuming, utterly in Exodus 33:20 God speaks to Moses and says, "You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live." You would much rather book an appointment with the sun and stand before the sun than stand before God. The sun will be more it'd be more pleasurable experience standing before the sun than it would be before God. Isaiah comes um, into the throne room of God, Isaiah 6. Some of you will know this well, and he comes into the throne room of God and he sees God and this is what he says. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knows, he's seen God, he's a dead man. And we know in the tale that uh, an angel comes off and puts a little burning coal on his lips and atones for all his sins. But when the Bible uses the phrase, the fear of the Lord, it means fear. It doesn't say it to just mean reverence and awe. Although, obviously, we have reverence and awe. Hebrews um, 12 uses that language. But it is fear. He knew, when Isaiah saw God, he knew immediately how wicked he was. I bet you before then, 
he didn't realize just the depths of how wicked he was. He didn't see, but he was a man of unclean desires. And I think if Isaiah the prophet thought that about himself, who are we then to think, oh yeah, we could stand before God. We wouldn't react like that. You know, I personally think Isaiah sees this vision of God. Others think he actually did come into the throne room of God. Whatever you believe, the only thing you can conclude is this. God is terrifying. He's terrifying. And so when people say something like, you know, God's my homeboy. God's my mate. He's my buddy. When they think of him as like a genie that gives all their wishes or a servant to order around. No, he's the God of the universe. He's a source of unlimited power. He's a consuming fire, holy, righteous, and good. If that is true, how can we conclude anything other than God is terrifying? Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Why would the writer of Hebrews say that? Why would he say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God? God is good. And if God is good, then what should a good God do to a dirty, rotten sinner like me? Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoa. Intense. That's Jesus. And he's saying that to you because he loves you. So often we spend our lives caring about the opinions and thoughts of others that we don't stop for a second to think about the opinion of the one person that matters. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Listen to verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul knows that one day all people are going to meet God and give an account for the life that they lived. And for the Apostle Paul, that's a terrifying thought. That's why he says, we persuade others. He goes out and tells people, you have a collision course with the God of the universe. You need redemption. You need salvation. It is not going to be a good visit. That's why the book of Proverbs calls the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't start with a knowledge of who God is, if you don't start with the fear of the Lord, you don't start with him being in control and you aren't in control. If you don't start realizing that this super intelligent God of the universe, you're going to have to encounter him one day and you're not going to have any excuse for anything you've done. You're not going to be able to tell him, I didn't know enough because God says you're without excuse. You know enough. If you don't start realizing that you're sinful and rebellious and that God's going to judge you, how are you ever going to even begin to find wisdom? How are you ever going to begin to find anything? The fear of the Lord ultimately is humility before a good, gracious, holy and terrifying God. He is fearsome. He's supposed to be fearsome. Don't make apologies for the way God presents himself in the Bible. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit. A lot of people leave that in spirit part off. They think poor people have the kingdom of God. But that's not true. 
It's those who are poor in spirit who realize they're broken, they're messy. Those who realize that they're lost, they're poor, they've got nothing to offer God. Those are the people that God will look on. Those are the people that God will have mercy on. Not the proud, not the boastful people that think they're good, think they've got their life together, don't care about the opinions of God. And so the question then um, is this, probably the most important question we can ask after hearing all these things. uh, How do you know if you fear the Lord? If you're like, okay, well, that's the beginning of wisdom. I need that. Please, I need that right now. How do you know whether you're really in the kingdom? Well, if you fear the Lord... There'll be results. There'll be change. The fear of the Lord changes a person entirely. And that brings us to our second point. The results of the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs is adamant that when you start fearing the Lord, things change. You start to live a wise, a joyful, a meaningful, a fulfilling life. Uh, Proverbs fifteen sixteen says, A better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasures and trouble with it. Those who may be poor that might not have a lot, we might look at them and think they're living a rather unfulfilled life. If they have the fear of the Lord, better is that than being the richest and most wealthy person in the world. It's better than being the CEO of Amazon or Facebook is to have little with the fear of the Lord. Why? Jesus says, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We gain all we know. We spend our life gaining all these riches and wealth and all these things that we think we want. And if our hope and trust is in that, then woe is onto us. But what does it profit us? Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure without it. Proverbs 19.23, the fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Interesting proverb right here. Those who trust in God, know God, will lead them into life, will give them rest, reassurance, even in the midst of suffering. It's not saying that harm will not befall you, but that ultimate harm, the one harm you need to fear, will not befall you. You can rest satisfied. It's fascinating. Having fear of the Lord leads to joy. You start with fear. But you move forward. Uh, Psalm 33, 8 to 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. For let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. We, uh, I read this at the start of the service. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Those who fear God know he's the amazing creator of all things. He spoke and created out of nothing. What is the only response to that? Worship. How can you not worship God when you know this? How can you not Grow in your awe and knowledge and delight and adoration of this enormous God. Sometimes the God we worship is too small. We need more of the God of the Bible. Those who fear God begin to recognize that it's the only joyful, meaningful, uh, restorative way to live. I mean, listen to this passage. Some of you guys will have heard this a million times, but just really pay attention to the language. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now, fearing God is not pleasant at the start. 
it's not pleasant at all, actually. It's a rather hor horrifying and horrible, terrifying experience. But the book of Proverbs promises you that by giving up your autonomy and surrendering your will to God, you will find healing. Uh, I, I'm stealing this analogy from Francis Chan, but I'm going to pretend it's my own. I was, um, I was out at Manly surfing. You guys, some of you guys have heard this before. Um, and it was a big day. I'm pretty sure I've told this like a few, a few weeks ago. Anyway, I'm going to hear it again. Anyway, um, I'm out there and it's, it's a massive day and I'm about two months learning how to surf. And if you know anything about learning how to surf, it takes a long time to even be basic in surfing, to even just be able to get a basic wave. And these waves were like enormous. They're probably like, oh, maybe up to that pillar. They, these things were just coming in crazy. And I'm like, what am I doing out here? And I, I was, all I was focused on was getting out of the back. And I got out the back, but the problem was I got out the back during like a lull. And then I'm out the back, and I remember I'm just watching this wave come, and I'm, I'm paddling over it, and I'm getting over the top of it, and I'm looking back at it and seeing it crash. And I'm like, how am I going to get back? I'm like stuck out here. I'm stuck out the back of the waves. And um, I remember I was looking around, and all the guys that were out there with me, it was pack day, they all start surfing out. And I've got this enormous eight-foot mini mount. And I'm like looking out at this wave coming, and I'm like, I better, I better get over this thing. So I'm paddling as fast as I can towards it, and I think I'm almost over, and it's cresting, and I'm like... My board comes up and it slaps down on the end and I'm thinking, oh, I'm just over it. But no, the wave just crashed. And here I come over the end of the falls at the worst spot to come off this wave. And I come in, I just get put through the washing cycle. Like I'm just tumbling. I don't know which way is up. I don't know which way is down. And I'm just like worried my board's going to hit me. I'm like curling up. And I was thinking, okay, it's going to stop in a second. It's going to stop now. And it just didn't stop. No matter how much I thought the wave was finally going to run its course, still tumbling, still tumbling. And it got to the point where I'm like, I might actually die here. Like, this may be it. I might die. And that's when your heart starts going. Like, I know some people go under a wave and already feel anxiety. I was like a hundred times that by this point. My heart's going. I'm fearful. I'm tumbling. I'm going down. I'm wondering when this thing is going to let me go. And I remember my body hit sand. I put my foot down, shot up to the top took that breath and oh man, that breath was like the best thing in the world. That wave, it took me all the way into shore. And I remember all these people were on shore looking at me, probably watched me get just destroyed by this wave and just watched this experience. I'm sure it was like 20 seconds this wave got me, but it felt like two minutes. And often that's kind of what the fear of the Lord is like. You encounter God and who he is and you're tumbling and you're wondering whether I'm going to make it. And then you come to an understanding of Jesus and you shoot up and you take that breath and oh, how good is that breath? How good is Jesus? In the book of Nehemiah, there's this great famine and um, a lot of poor people who had to borrow money in order to feed their families. And so they were borrowing money from their friends and from their relatives and they thought this was a perfect time to charge an inordinate amount of interest. And they did. And they basically charged so much interest that they turned their own relatives and people into economic slaves, dependent on them. When Nehemiah hears about this, he gathers all the leaders, he gathers the people that are enslaving them, and he says to them this. Nehemiah uh, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? People who don't fear God abuse those weaker than them. Why? Because they think there's no God who sees. 
There's no God who knows. There's no God who will eventually bring justice upon them. Rulers who don't think there is a God, who don't fear God, well, they tax their citizens into poverty. They send soldiers into homes to kick down doors. They use their money to fuel their wicked desires because they think there's no higher authority than them. Pastors who don't fear God use the church to get rich, abuse the sheep, attempt to get status, never thinking that one day God's going to come and cleanse his household. Jesus says in Matthew seven sixteen, you will recognize them by the fruits, a grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. The fear of the Lord produces results. It's just as easy to spot someone who doesn't fear the Lord as it is to spot someone who does. Why? Because if you know who God is, how could you not be changed? If it really found a spot in your heart and you're like, that's who God is, boy, I got to get my life in order. There is change. There is change. No fruit means no change. If you're a fig tree producing thistles, guess what? You're not a fig tree. You're a thistle bush. It's, re- it's a really simple analogy from Jesus. The problem is we don't, by our own choice, become thistle, uh, go from thistle trees into fig trees. We, we often, we need a miracle. Uh, this is going to bring to us to our third point, the fulfillment of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 16, 6 says this, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Iniquity is another word for sin. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. The book of Proverbs looks forward to a day when God would atone for the iniquity of his people. God's steadfast love and faithfulness means that he did not just write the human race off where he could have. He could have just wrote us off, judged us all and started again, but he decided to restore us. He planned to redeem, even in the midst of our rebellion. We've got to remember our predicament before God, because I haven't solved anything for you yet. Ecclesiastes 12.14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. If that phrase doesn't strike the fear of the Lord into your heart, I don't know what will. I'll say it another way. Let's say I got a USB plugged into your head, downloaded all your worst thoughts, played it on the PowerPoint before you. God sees that every day. That's the one person you don't want to see it. And yet we're more afraid of us here seeing that. The fear of the Lord doesn't save you. Why? Well, it's not enough to be afraid of an explosion. You need something to shield you from it. It's not enough to be afraid of a house collapsing. You need to be underneath a table. To shield you from it. It's not enough to be afraid of a 10,000 foot fall. You need a parachute. Fear of those things doesn't save you from those things. Romans 5.10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God showed his steadfast love and faithfulness to you by shielding you from his wrath with his own son. Jesus was the shield that shielded you from that explosion. Jesus was the table that saved you when the house collapsed. Jesus is the parachute that saves you from the 10,000 foot fall. Fearing those things is not enough. You need something to save you. Isaiah 11, 2 to 3. Listen to this prophecy about Jesus, especially in light of the book of Proverbs. Just listen to the language. Really, 
one, pretty much the last verse I'm go- you're going to have to pay attention to. It says this, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is the Messiah who was to come, source of all wisdom and understanding, source of all counsel and might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Jesus perfectly feared the Lord as an obedient son. He was full of wisdom and understanding. He was the perfect son that the book of Proverbs describes. The perfect son. And he was perfect and obeyed God so that you wouldn't have to fear God as a judge, but as a father. Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord so that you too can delight in the fear of the Lord. For the non-believer, fear of God looks different, doesn't it? Because for them, they have every cause to fear God because God will come in judgment. For the believer, we no longer fear God as an enemy but as a son that fears disappointing his father, a son that fears the disapproval of his father. We fear God because we love God. Jesus didn't deserve to die. In fact, he was the only person that ever lived or ever will live that didn't deserve to die. And yet he swapped places with you so that you wouldn't have to fear God as an enemy, but as a father. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For Christians who believe in Jesus, fearing God and loving God are one and the same. If you love God, you will fear God. If you fear God, you will love God. We're going to do communion now. And I just thought we'd leave communion until after this. Because the Lord's Supper is, I guess, uh, a sacrament that is a fearful thing. Because we remember the extent to which God had to go in order to rescue and redeem us, which was blood, death. His broken body. And it gives us all the more cause to fear. We look at the early church. It says that they feared God. Read the book of Acts. You'll see constantly that phrase about how the early church feared God. We know that God is jealous for his people. That God is a judge. But that God redeems and rescues. And so we're going to come to communion And we're going to remember this sacrifice to Jesus, the true fearer of the Lord, the one who enables us to come to him, the one who swaps us from being God's enemy to being his child.